Hello, everyone. I am back. It's been a while. I hope you're well. I hope you're healthy. I hope you survived the pandemic. It's been wild, huh? It's been a long time. I'm doing well. My wife is due to give birth to our second child in a matter of weeks. Please, God. I don't know if I've fully registered it. People keep asking me if I'm excited, and I am in theory, but I also don't really fully grasp it. I guess when it happens, that's when the reality will set in. That's kind of how it was for when Sophie was born. But in any event, life is about to change again, hopefully in a beautiful way. And uh, I've been busy. I put out a new comic book. It's available at fairenoughcomic.com. I think you'll love it. It's a kind of an homage that I don't like that word because it's so bougie, but bougie is also kind of a bougie word, but it's kind of an homage to, to Herge. I was always a big Tintin fan or Tantan if you're in Europe uh, growing up. And it's a story about the time that I met the comedian Jonathan Winters, the late, great Jonathan Winters. I think it's a pretty cool story. It's a true story, as they all are. And the artist, Nico Toran, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, did a phenomenal job with the art. He really did a beautiful, beautiful job with the art. That's available for sale at fairenoughcomic.com, as is my Thanksgiving issue, which came out over the pandemic, about the time that I crashed the Macy's Day Parade which is also great, beautiful art by Josh Spooner. So check those comic books out. Happy Hanukkah if you're out there and you're an observer of Hanukkah or if you just observe Hanukkah from afar. I have a very special Hanukkah episode for you today. Today I sit down to talk with somebody who I've been a fan of since I was a kid, Seth Glass, who attended the same synagogue as I did in Long Beach, New York when I was a kid. He lives out here now, as do I. He's quite a bit older than I am. And I always saw him as like a really great undiscovered talent. And I don't just say that because I was a kid and I was in awe, because I saw a lot of musicians as a kid, a lot of local talent. Certainly in the Jewish scene, I saw a lot of Jewish musicians. And I was never terribly impressed by most of them. But Seth Glass, I always thought, this guy is such an artist. As great a musician as he is, he's even a more incredible lyricist. I feel like his lyrics are just beautiful poetry. And I think as you listen to the interview, you'll quickly come to the realization that he's on a different plane, man. He is on a different frequency than we are. He's some kind of a, I see him as like a psychedelic spiritual song maker. He's a very proud Jew. He's very philosophical. We didn't even need to do a philosopher for this one. He's just so philosophical in his own right. I think you'll get a lot out of that. And just the way he breaks down language and words. and I mean, just an incredible guy. He came to do this interview the night before the first of several hand surgeries he has to get on both his hands. Imagine being a musician, a guitarist, and having to get surgeries on both your hands and he has some kind of condition he he mentions what it is and talks about it in the interview 
where his fingers were kind of mangled a little bit. I don't want to, you know, sort of like roots of a tree. And he's going to, God willing, get them straightened out in these surgeries. And as anybody would be, he was freaked out before they happened. And uh, the first of them I know has gone well. I think he still has some to go. But he he called me up in a panic saying, I don't know if I'll ever get to play guitar again. We got to record this now. And he came over late at night and we recorded this hour and a half interview that I think is really special. And I hope you guys will dig it as much as I did doing the interview. And I hope you'll get a lot out of it. I think he's really just a phenomenal, interesting, talented guy. And I think that all comes through. Who's had, He's had a lot of life struggles, ups and downs and in-betweens and very cool experiences touring on the road with some really interesting people and he had his own band for a little while i mean it it's it's a it's a really cool interview and i've i've seen a lot of the story from sitting on the bleachers or on the sidelines i don't know what you'd call it from just growing up as a kid watching the great seth glass so without further ado check out seth glass enjoy i'll play a song you never heard before okay it's cool you don't know about me it's my uh, ode to uh, solidarity regarding uh, anti-Semitism. <clears throat> Here we go. Been. You ain't seen the things that I've seen You don't play the game what I do Test, no, 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 yeah. It comes down to it's old, it's tried, and it's true. You don't know about me. No, you don't know about me. You might think that you're looking and seeing your soul very blind. Can listen forever, brother. I tell you, it's silence all the time. You will never get 
ounce of sympathy For all I know you're smiling while Coming after me sitting here with seth glass and you don't know about this guy as this song said but you will know about him after this interview tonight i hope now might learn a few things about myself myself <laughs> seth is not only a world-class musician i would say a musical genius one of the great songwriters and uh somebody who's been a friend somebody who's been an inspiration to me for so many years and just an all-around cool guy seth it's great to have you here thanks danny it's great to be here it's so cool that we're getting to do this how cool is this i've known you since i was a little just a wee kid how old were you were you like 12 or something or 11 well when i met you well what year did you move to long beach okay <clears throat> i moved to long beach in 82 i think so I probably met you when I was like five or six. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty wild, right? Like yeah. and now you're here with like a, a full grown man with a child with child. I'm with child. Facial hair and Yeah. <laughs> but but you knew me since I was just, just <clears throat> a tiny little guy. You always had a you had a knack for uh, style. You always like to throw a little a little wiggle into the style. I remember it was maybe Sammy's bar mitzvah. Or a wedding or something. We were at the place down in Atlantic Beach. What was at the Sands, right? That big okay. creating place. And you had bought this suit. It was like a three quarter jacket. Uh huh. And like you went like somewhere. You like you went to like Watts to buy a suit. It was yeah, crazy. I would go to I would go to um, <laughs> like Green Acres Mall to the to like the black stores. <laughs> yeah. And I get because they had the funkiest suits. So I was like, yeah. I gotta go there. I think it was called Today's Brother or something. I remember the name of it. The first time I did stand up in a club, I wore a Nehru jacket and I thought, like, wow, this could be my look. And then people were like, oh, that was Lenny Bruce's thing. I was like, oh, man, all right. Well, Kurt know. Cobain wears like that surgeon butcher's jacket, long white thing, yeah. playing crazy songs. But I thought it would be really cool to be the guy with the Nehru jacket. <clears throat> you know? It would be. Well, it could be one of your, one of your, um, personas like uh what's mm -hmm. his name uh sasha baron cohen mm -hmm. you know borat always wears that horrible tans like you know bill gates type of suit and uh <laughs> yeah. you know <laughs> and the other guys wear all kinds of like what was it bruno or something so, so where were you born and raised <laughs> i was born um 
in uh, well, I was I lived in Queens. I was born actually in in Manhattan, in New York City proper, mm -hmm. which used to be called Gotham County for real in the old days in the Dutch, and um, at Mount Sinai Hospital. So that's where I was born, and we lived in Queens in a, an area called Briarwood, which is next to uh, Kew Garden Hills, I think. It's near the Parsons, where it meets the Grand Central. Okay, so I, I, I was born in a Manhattan Hospital also, right. and originally from Queens, from really? Flushing. Oh, Flushing is right around the corner. Yeah. It was Jamaica, where I lived basically. It was called Jamaica. We'd go down Parsons to mm -hmm. Union Turnpike, and then it's Jamaica, you Merrick Boulevard. All that. Yeah. I went to junior high school on Springfield Boulevard, IS-59, which was a nightmare, a night, a living hell. Why? Uh, I was the only Caucasian in the school, uh -huh. and I was probably the only Jew, and I was... It's not saying that because of a, a, a race that it was... It was just like it was a rough neighborhood, it was a rough school. If I went to school with money in my pocket for lunch or my, my bus pass, mm -hmm. it was gone at the end of the day. I, I begged and pleaded with my father to buy me the first time that sneakers took a, a turn away from canvas and they made a gold suede Converse All-Stars. And I got my, my, my All-Stars and I was in the schoolyard and uh, they flipped me up on, on my head and, and took my sneakers off and I went in socks, I went home in socks. Oh no. Yeah, it was crazy. But that was, that was, that was nothing compared, it was crazy. But I grew up there and then we moved to... Uh, that was Laurelton. We live in Laurelton, right next to Rosedale. Uh huh. <clears throat> that's one of the LIR stops. That's exactly, all I know about exactly. it. Exactly. That's the Laurelton, Rosedale, and yeah. And then <laughs> that's right. Five, four o'clock in the morning when you when you fell asleep and went out to Montauk Point, right? You had to wait three hours for the train going back. Um, yeah. Then we moved to Valley Stream. So how old were you then? Let's see. When I moved to Laurelton, I would have been. Hold on. That was probably like third grade. So like six and seven years old, something like that. And then I think you're <clears throat> I think you're older than that in third grade. Well, fifth grade fifth, kindergarten is five. You're five years old. So, mm -hmm. so well, one, two, three, eight. So you'll be like eight or you'll nine. Be eight, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm not great. That's my weak spot is chronology and numbers. I'm, I'm weak at that too. In order to memorize numbers, I actually have to translate them into Hebrew letters and make words out of them, and I memorize the numbers that way. Oh, that's a smart trick. Yeah. But you'd have to. But really, you have to. It's a smart trick. You have to be smart to do that. When I sh if I show you this, that look that's sitting there, you'll hear some crazy things about letters. But anyway, so we moved to Valley Stream, and I went to high school there for the the um, 10, 11, 12 grades. Uh -huh. Graduated early in January '76, and. Uh, they stayed in Valley Stream, and I, I traveled around a little bit, and I wound up in Long Beach. I wound up in Long Beach because I met Bobby Binder at the health food store. From Bob's Natural Foods? Yeah. Grand What Division. year was, uh, was this? That was, uh, it was 80. So you're jumping way ahead, right? I mean, one second, you're oh, in yeah. third grade, and now you're no, moving I'm along. Saying, we moved, there wasn't much to talk about, really. It was, well, you it don't was, know that. We have to look at it. It was Come a fairly on. spiritually <laughs> sterile environment. You know, it was... You know, I went from being the white kid on, uh, you know, in, in, in Springfield Gardens at, uh -huh. at junior high school. And my first day on the way to, um, on the way to high school, I hear this like tinkling, jingling sounds. These guys, these dudes are like running after me, throwing pennies at me saying, hey, go buy a watch, Jew. You know, like this. And I was like, uh -huh. oh man, first I was white and now I'm Jewish and I'm still short. 
Uh-huh. I didn't hit puberty till I was like almost 16. It was it was atrocious. Did you have a sibling uh, or do you have siblings? I have three siblings. Okay. I have three sisters. Sorry. I have three sisters, an older sister and two younger. Okay. See, if you had an older brother, maybe he could look out for you more, but you know, with an older sister, I don't think. That was one of the things I wanted so badly growing up. When when my, my when my third sister popped out, they brought her home and they said, "Yeah, but a sister." I was really like, "Man, <laughs> you wanted a brother." <laughs> Tossing a bone here, yeah, I did. I wanted, a, I wanted yeah. a brother. But now I got you. Hey, I'll be your brother. I got you, baby. So, <clears throat> your sisters were they in the same school also? No, they by well, my older sister was in the school for like one for one year. I mean, but she was in like a separate part of the school she was like in the accelerated program and mm-hmm. all the smart kids were there and some gaggle of other nationalities um and she was sorry she was um she was a little bit of, of uh insulated from it you mm-hmm. know and uh, she ran with kids that were older but um no it was it was three it was sixth seventh eighth grade of there and then i did a, the first year of high school at springfield gardens high school which was really rough because then it was they had gangs with like mm-hmm. knives and guns and like 14 police cars parked outside because you had to like walk through a, a wall of a corridor of police officers, mm-hmm. you know, to make sure nobody got killed. But they did anyway. And uh, and then I started working in the city. I went to Queens College, I studied music. Mm-hmm. I started working in the city. I worked in the cosmetics industry. Were you playing guitar at the time? Yeah, you know, I started playing guitar. Um, uh, an honorary cousin. It was a family that we called aunt and uncle and cousins, but we were just our mothers. Our mothers grew up together as children mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. Anyway, so Jody gets a guitar and he starts taking guitar lessons, and I'm like, "Oh God, I gotta do this!" You know, mm-hmm. he learned how to play "Painted Black" by the Stones or something. It was gotta do this. So mm-hmm. I got a guitar, a little Giannini, and they found me this teacher, and her name was Lalia, and she she did something so. I think I think this is probably the, ter- the thing that helped me to stay with the guitar, was that she didn't teach me like uh, scale theory or you know how to hold the thing and you know the accuracy. She taught me three chords, and she taught me a song to play and sing. And I learned how to play and sing a song in like an hour and a half. Amazing. And then the other stuff was tolerable, you know. What is the first song you ever wrote? Oh wow. Um, okay. The second song I ever wrote is The King is in the Field. Really? Yep. That was the second song? Mm-hmm. That's an impressive song. The first, thank you. The first song I ever wrote, um, you might not have heard it. It's called Eight from One. I don't even remember how to play it anymore. It was a song about, about Hanukkah and the lights and the miracles. Do you remember how any of it went? <sighs> yeah. Well, <clears throat> it's a nice mic. It sounds good. Thank you. be funny if that was the song you're like that's how it goes that's how it goes yeah (laughs) jimmy Hendrix said only cowboys stay in tune anyway (laughs) so like um Illuminate your soul now 
Let it in, a gift from him, the Holy One of old now. Days have passed, light at last, bring it down, as sure now. Or Quito, fires go, lamp unto the nation. Now you're like, how old were you when you wrote that? Um, I would have been, I would have been, I was, I was in my 30s. I was in my early to mid 30s. I so think. you didn't write a song until you were in your 30s? No, I found scraps of like some poem that I had written to a cousin whose husband died and it was uh -huh. about a rose that got crushed onto the, the heel of some unknowing gentleman, you know, um, and, uh. It was like floral, uh, but I never wrote a song. And um, what happened was, okay, so I was playing with Rip Shlomo Karlibach, mm -hmm. right? And I was like his wingman. I went for two years. I was like his solo accompanist. We spent a lot of time. A together. lot of people tuned into this won't know who that is. So <clears throat> in a nutshell, can you explain who that, that was? Well, He's not what they called him when the plane did an emergency landing in a field in somewhere in Africa, and the uh, and the 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 people from the, from the from the the vicinity came over and he came off and he had his hair was long you know people didn't know he had really long hair and really long payas and beard he tucked it up and they and they called him Masa Jesus <laughs> they thought he was Jesus <laughs> he's like a holy man you know with books were you with him for that no I? no I wasn't in Africa. But, but no, he, but who was he, he? Okay, Shlomo Karlbach was actually uh, a tw an identical twin to Eli Chaim Karlbach's brother, and they were <laughs> okay. children of Naftali Karlbach, and they were from Lubeck, Germany, and they were very special. Uh, uh, they had very, very, very strong and unique intellectual capacities as children. So the parent, the father, made sure to get them like learning with really, like, deep, sharp people. Mm -hmm. And long story short, you know, Shlomo was just like crazy about learning. And when he would when he would talk about Abraham and Sarah, for example, you really I got the impression that he wasn't talking about it, but like it was like he was inside of Abraham's head, looking out at the world through his eyes and feeling it through his heart. That's how intimate he was, you know. And he uh, went through the yeshivot, and he was gonna Rabbi Aaron Cutler tapped him to take over as the Rosh Yeshiva in Lakewood. That's how. Big of a Talmudic genius, Shlomo was. People don't even know that because the music and the stories kind of like, you know, blew over it. But he started writing music and he went, uh, he left that yeshiva and he went to the Lubavitcher Rebbe and he was learning Chasidus and mysticism. And the, the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, he sent him and uh, Zalman Schachter out as Shluchim, early Shluchim, to do Kirov and he went to Berkeley. Then he started to, you know, write his own music, and he was just on fire. But I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you an anecdote and what what Shlomo was capable of. Right, mm -hmm. we went to do a show for uh, in that maximum security prison in Comstock, New York. No, it, yeah, up Adirondacks. It was called Comstock, the maximum federal penitentiary. So we go up there. It's like a long train ride to Albany, and then we stay over this house. We do a little kumzitz in the living room. The next morning, we drive another three hours, all for one Jewish guy in the whole jail. He went through this whole trip just for this guy specifically. So we get there, and 
you know, they're checking every pocket and they're checking the amps and they're taking the guitars apart, you know, looking to see if we're bringing any contraband or what have you. Anyway, so they had a band in the jail and they had all set up. <clears throat> he had been there six years prior and they remembered him and they wrote a song for him. And he's sitting there and they do this. There is a man from Israel. Slow Moses made him. And so sitting there like, you know that JBL speaker ad where the guy's hair is blowing back? Yeah. <laughs> yeah he's like sitting there like, what? He's like going 90 miles an hour in a car. And they and he, they just blew him away. And then we go and do our thing. And you know, he's telling stories and he's singing songs. And when we first got in there, it was a rough mix. You know, there was a lot. Of, you could see there was a lot of like people don't, mm -hmm. don't, deal with those people like they hate each other and these really big big muscly dudes and they weren't there because they stole a hershey bar you know they're killers you know really mm -hmm. 35 guys i'm getting out in 30 years i'm like yes go <laughs> and so shloma tells this story this rib nachman story about never giving up hope <clears throat> and when they started out like this arms folded in the back of the room you know mm -hmm. scowling and you know i'm only here because they told me i have to be here you know and at the end of an hour and a half, they were standing in a circle with their arms around each other. And then they're lining up, sobbing and getting hugs and, 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 and asking him to be their, their rabbi. Everybody in jail wants a rabbi because he gets them favors. Mm -hmm. And I was in this other, there was another situation where he went to a prison and he asked the warden, have I met every prisoner? And he said, yeah. He says, everybody? Yeah, yeah. Is it everybody? And I said, well, there's one guy. No, he's like, they chain him up and he's alone in, in, a, in a brick room. Can't. And he says, no, I have to see him. And he, Shlomo wouldn't wouldn't give up. And they said, all right. So they they, they brought him out like on a dolly, like uh, what's that name of that? Hannibal movie? Lecter. Yeah, yeah, Hannibal Lecter. And he's laying there, he's chained up, and he had done some horrific, heinous, violent acts, you know. that. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, Shlomo was talking to him, and Shlomo says, can I give you a hug? And the guy like, you know, I don't think he ever got hugged since he can remember when he was a baby. Must have had it rough. And and he hugs him. And the dude on the stretcher starts to cry. And Shlomo pulls him away and he says, Rabbi, if somebody hugged me like that when I was a child, I wouldn't be in this place today. I know it. I know that's the love I needed, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's the way Shlomo was able to get to people. And he just travels constantly. Always wanted to turn people on. So I'm going to say something that I, I don't know if it came through yet, but there he, he's sort of, there's a, there's an entire Jewish Jewish movement. Against him? That he started. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That, yeah. that there are synagogues that, that are named for him. Happy Minion. Right? They call it the the Karlbach Synagogue in right. Manhattan. Right, that's Kehillat Jacob, but it's also called the Karlbach Shul. But they nicknamed them the Happy Minion because everybody's dancing and singing for hours, you know. So like he started, uh, you know, he's almost like a Jewish—I don't want to say it—cult leader, but you know, but right? I mean, to give some perspective to people who who are, you know, that don't know. I remember as a kid we used to call him the Jewish Jerry Garcia. That's how we saw him. But he uh, he, uh, he had tremendous charisma, uh -huh. he had tremendous love and care for people. You know, somebody wrote a book, a woman named Yetta Mandelbaum, she put a, a book together called Holy Brother. Uh -huh. Because there were, there were books about teachings and, and Hasidic stories that Shlomo used to tell. Mm -hmm. And that one's called Shlomo's Stories. And then she put this book together called Holy Brother. And she interviewed people who had had, like, really in, intense experiences with him, you know. Mm -hmm. 
like one one woman she was a young woman she she ran away from home she her father was the grand dragon in the kkk down south mm -hmm. and she wound up in berkeley and she wound up in the house of love and prayer and she used to tell you know stories about her father like whoa and then one day all of a sudden because she ran away and then they they, they said her father's coming up the drive he's coming to the door and people are jumping out the windows and split and then only only Shlomo and the girl, you know, and mm -hmm. this this grand wizard opens the door and there's like fire bolts coming out of his eyes. He's probably packing heat. And Shlomo looks at him, he says, My sweetest friend, your daughter talks about you all the time. You can't believe the things she says about you. <laughs> and he melted him. And I think he hugged him and he said he said he let her he let her stay. And he said, You're the only rabbi that is gonna be my daughter's rabbi. Nobody but you. I mean that was it was uh, so so let's go back a little bit here yeah. because uh your first song that you ever wrote was a Hanukkah song. Yes. And now we're talking about you when you used to tour with somebody who was basically an icon in Judaism. True. And a and a very skilled musician. Um He was a skilled composer and he was a virtuosic singer. If you listen to his recordings when he was young mm -hmm. he does all this what they call coloratura which uh, is very popular in hip-hop the oldest control of these like little shifts in the voice like what's mm -hmm. her name christina aguilera they could all do that little modulation yeah. and he did that cantorial style and he wrote the music it's just like people hear it for the first time and they start singing it within a minute they know it you know he intuited like really essential melodies amazing uh guitar though he i think he knew about five chords and he had a capo, which he can change the key. And I was forever buying him picks. He was like, he said, he got a credit card. He's strumming. I said, Shlomo, where's the picks? I bought you like 20 picks. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, so, but, it, but it, you, don't, you don't need it to be complicated. As simple is probably better. It seems like in your story growing up, it doesn't sound like you came from a religious Jewish home. I came, home, I came from a conservative home. Um, my mother lit Shabbos candles every Friday night and she cried when she lit them and she blessed us. Mm -hmm. My father made uh, kiddush on the, the wine and the mozi and we, then we all held hands and he said a, a prayer for everybody who needed like leg up, you know. And then we ate the meal and then Pesach, Passover, anybody could eat in my mother's house. She cleaned it, changed it out top to bottom. We go to shul, mm -hmm. went to Hebrew school, learned how to read Hebrew, didn't understand it. And... Um, then, you know, like after shul in the morning, then it was Saturday. You could go bowling or, you know, shopping, whatever it was. But, but it was such a, it was such a no pressure. It was enjoyable. Like there was, you could mm -hmm. enjoy an hour at the table, you know, Shabbos. You can and enjoy singing at pace. Like you do this and this. And they never like forced it on you or yelled at you. Oh, you turned the light on or some horrible mm -hmm. thing, you know, mm -hmm. ripped toilet paper. And the kids got to go to therapy for 20 years over it, you know. <laughs> So it was like it was a very nice childhood. It sounds like <laughs> it no? was. It was a. It was a. Um, it was a multi-level dwelling. <laughs> okay. Psycho, psycho emotionally and physically. Uh -huh. There was a lot of dark darkness under the surface with um, senior members of the family, um, and there was a lot of there was a lot of abuse, and there was a lot of lies told to make things look like Ozzy and Harriet like it did on the surface you know mm -hmm. so it was it was complicated because on one hand it was very loving you know and on the other hand you know my, my parents may they rest in peace 
they were really really good people and they were really not always very good parents mm -hmm. <laughs> they did the nuts and bolts they but bought the clothes and the it diapers, sounds like the know? jewish stuff they did right because you... they did that right yeah. yeah and then my dad took me to the grand canyon i got i pushed away from judaism and um he 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 took me along with him to las vegas he was in the fancy food industry and he had a trade show at the mgm grand so he's, I went with him, I was helping him set it up and break it down. But he really wants, I didn't, I didn't. What go, did he do? He, he worked for an importer of um, British fine, uh, fancy foods, like uh, special biscuits and high class teas and uh -huh. preserves and things. It was cool stuff. Anyway, so uh, <clears throat> he took me to the Grand Canyon. And it was really weird because I, I felt like, being Jewish at that point in my life was like having a pimple on my nose that would never go away. Mm -hmm. And we go to the Grand Canyon. For some reason, I I took a siddur, a prayer book. It was a green army issue, World War II siddur that he had from, my dad was in the army and his brother. And I threw it in my suitcase. I don't know why. And we got to this big old Grand Canyon and I couldn't cope with it. Like I felt so, I felt so minuscule and it was so big and I had like a real spiritual awakening. And the only way I could cope with it was I, I would I would stand facing east and I would pray once or twice a day, and that was something that really kickstarted it. That's what got you into it. <clears throat> it, it propelled. It, it started me. Um, I mean, I had also been experimenting a little bit with psychedelics at the time, and that was also a catalyst. And I didn't use it as a horsing around drug. I I, I went out in nature and meditated. You know, and the the aliveness of life really like started to become. It, it's just paradigm shift anyway but i saw that big old grand canyon and and the and the the the, the chasm of time not just the chasm of rock mm -hmm. was and, and this is just on a little pea floating in the middle of nowhere how old were you at this point 17 and a half I think. okay so you said you moved away from it for a while yeah. So that was like leading up to then. So because, just a few years, right? I was in the city one day and I was like, I don't have anything to do with it. And there was a mitzvah tank, you know, a mitzvah truck that the Chabad guys, they want you to put tefillin on. Uh -huh. So I'm walking and he's like, this guy starts like pacing me. He's walking next to me like the, the security guys do at the airport. And he looks at me and says, you Jewish? And I said, nah. <laughs> he says, you're not Jewish? I said, no. He says, you're telling me you're not Jewish? I said, I'm not Jewish. I ran away. <laughs> Get with it, you know. <laughs> he had your number, huh? <laughs> he had my number. Yeah. But you know what really was interesting? This was a real turning point. I I was, do you remember uh, a, a magician named Doug Henning in the magic show on Broadway? Mm -mm. He was a stage, he used to open up for, he was from Canada, and he did big stage magic illusions, and he opened up for rock shows. You know, he was like a cool magician. And he had this show that he wrote with Stephen, whatever his name, Schwartz, maybe? He did the music. Okay. It was a musical called The Magic Show at the Court Theater. And I was really into sleight of hand magic. I used to practice all night. And my sister took me to the magic show. And it blew me away. And afterwards, she says, oh, let's go to the stage door and we'll, we'll say hello to Doug, you know? And I said, no, 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 we can't do it. She goes, no, they like it, you know, they want it. So we walked in and Alan Arkin, I remember, was walking out. And we were walking in and he was really friendly. He says, oh, you like magic? I was like 13, you know. Uh -huh. I said, yeah, I love it. He says, well, come around the theater, you know, in the afternoon, in between the shows, and I'll I'll show you some stuff. And I became like the Sorcerer's Apprentice. He he taught me, he introduced from me. From Alan Arkin? No, from, this is Doug Henning, oh, okay. the magician. He was like probably the most popular magician, like David Copperfield would be now. Anyway, so uh, long story short, um, 
I was taking books out of the library on magic and a lot of different technique and history of magic. And I get this one and I open up and it freaked me out. I saw Hebrew letters that like Torah font, you know, the Asherit script, you know? And I'm like, what the hell is this, right? And I was talking to a friend of mine who was not Jewish, he lived across the street. And he said, yeah, don't you know your religion has this like deepest mystical beating heart, you know, the Kabbalah and, you know, I said, I have no idea about that. It's a dried up, dry as a bone, you know, I, I don't like it. But that that really like was like a shock to my system, you know, and then, I mean, now I lean towards studying things that are more esoteric and um, those letters have become a really, really important part of my reality. So That's true, we couldn't live without them. <laughs> so I'm... Uh... I'm not even sure like where to go with this story well, because there's so much here. Like the history of Seth the Jew. Yeah, there's the history of Seth the Jew. There's the history of Seth the musician. Here's what happened when I, I mentioned Shlomo. This is why it came up in the first place. Uh huh. So <clears throat> I was playing with Shlomo, and then uh, you know Stewie Wax. You must know Stewie Wax. No. Okay, Stewie Wax lives in Florida now, but he was he was like. Running, running the the Happy Minion Shlomo Shul, you know, here in L.A., mm -hmm. and he would have Friday night meals, and everybody would go there, and it's like a real Shlomo Chassid, also a big deadhead and a Jerry Garcia, mm -hmm. and he was in the music business and the song uh, um, publishing, and he said to me, "I'm going to introduce you to this guy Mark Freed. He works at BMI." You know, BMI is like ASCAP and CSAC, you know, the cool performing rights organizations. Okay. They're liaisons and they also monitor the airwaves for any publicly uh, performed pub, uh, copywritten work. And, and, they, and they, they extract the, the, the royalties and they distribute them to the, whoever owns the pieces of the song, artists, etc., publishers. So he says, I didn't know what BMI was. I thought it was a record store. Mm -hmm. And he says, yeah, I'm going to introduce this guy, Mark Freed, and he's got a brother who lives in Long Beach, and his brother's got all kinds of health problems, and I knew his brother. So I called this guy up, and yeah, he was really friendly, nice guy. And he says, so, um, let's get together. Come on in, you know, to the office, and we'll, we'll have a meeting, you know, get lunch. I said, great. He says, yeah, bring, and bring, you know, whatever songs you're working on, whatever songs you had. And I said, okay. <laughs> yeah. I hung up the phone. I, dr I literally dropped to my knees. I said, Hashem, God... I need some songs, man. Uh -huh. I really need you to give me some love here, you know? And I wrote that eight in one, that Hanukkah song, and then I wrote The King is in the Field. And what happened when, in that meeting? Did they dig what you wrote? You know, he was really, yeah, he, dig, he dug it very hard. And then I got involved with ASCAP, which is like one of their competitors, because um, I wanted to, they, I got invited into a, a songwriting workshop, which was like pretty elite. And... <clears throat> I started, yeah, I started writing a lot, and, and Mark, I don't want to say anything bad, I'll just say this. As soon as I finished the first CD, Question of Faith, mm -hmm. he calls me up, I dropped it off, and he calls me up, and he's like, just going on and on and on about it, especially that song, you know? He says, so, um, we're going to work together. You know, I'm, I'm offering you a standard co-pub deal, 50%, you know, and we'll figure out what to do with the masters. And, you know, I told... I told my friends in like publishing the deal. I said, "Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. And you know what happened? What happened? <laughs> Nothing. Well, not surprised. And he, and, he, and, he, right. and he had sat at his desk. Mark, if you ever hear this, I still love you. And you helped me. You gave me a lot of chizik, a lot of strength and encouragement. But he sat at his desk before that incident. And he made believe he was holding a big cigar like George Burns. He says, all right, kid, we're going to make you a star. <laughs> Live and learn. So it's pretty wild that you wrote these songs because you had an opportunity right away. Like you weren't even writing before that. Supply and demand. And then and then how did this relationship with, with uh, Shlomo Karlibach come around? Okay. Um, <clears throat> I went to... Israel to visit my sister and to visit Israel in 92, um, two years before Shlomo passed away. And we went to the Moshav Modi'in, which was his, his territory in Israel that he cultivated with his, you know, his, his kavra, and um, walked into, and Shlomo was there that Shabbos because he traveled so much, he was very often not there. Uh-huh. My sister said, oh, it's a Shlomo Shabbos, meaning he's gonna be, Shlomo's going to be on the Moshav. So walk into the shul, and it was a gorgeous little shul. They're all artisans. One guy's a perfumer and aromatherapy. This one's a painter, the musicians. You know, the Solomon brothers, their father, they grew up in the Moshav, you know, Yehuda Solomon and brothers. Okay. And, and their father, Ben Sion Solomon, was, he was Shlomo Karlibach's, like, right-hand guy in, mm-hmm. in, the, in the way of, like, transcribing the music and preserving it. Anyway, um... So I walk into shul and they're and they're singing, you know, singing Kabbalah Shabbat. They're welcoming in the Sabbath, and the melodies just sounded really familiar. It was all vocal, of course, and I closed my eyes and something happened. Like I went into this long tunnel, it, like inside my mind, but I was traveling as green, and then there was this, like a butterfly dancing over my head, but it wasn't physical. It was just like an undulating shadow, and. And I, I said, after the finished praying, I said to Shlomo, I told him what happened. I told him what, what's going on here. And it's still up there. And I said, what is it? You know, he said, it's a gift. Hold on to it. I said, how does it get here? He says, everyone's cover notes together, everyone's intentions and, the you know, the heart love. Um, that's what brings it down. Then I walk outside of the shul and I look up and now this thing is like 200 feet over my head a billion size larger, flapping like a, it was feminine. It was like a like a black robe butterfly or something. And it just was over my head. The whole shop just went away. So I I was I was pretty impressed. And he gives me his card. I was giving him a foot massage. And he and he gives me his card. He says, Here, you come come Yes, you're also a masseuse. Yeah, yeah, for many years. For he said he says, you know, you someone used to talk like a combination of of a German immigrant with that Lubeckian, you know, twang. And he picked up a lot of jive speak by going past the the um, the gospel uh, the gospel churches in, in the city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was tight with Nina Simone, you know, and he picked up a lot of affect. And uh, so he'd be like, brother, <laughs> he'd come out like, smile. <laughs> you look sharp like a dog. <laughs> and it, was, it was just so funny. It was like a, it was like a cross between a, like a, uh, chicken, chicken, uh, no, chicken liver, uh, chicken liver spread and chopped liver and and chitlins. You know, mm-hmm. it was like that. It was like the vocal. Anyway, so uh, yeah, he um, 
he gives me his card and I said, I didn't know you were in New York. I live in New York. He says, yeah, yeah, I'm in New York. I'm in Toronto. I'm in Israel. I go everywhere. Mm-hmm. So a few weeks later, I went in and I had my guitar and he heard me playing. And his daughter, Neshama, oh no, he, he hired me on. He started hiring me. And then Neshama said, she didn't know me yet. And she said, oh, dad, you know, you should, you should play with this guy. He's good. And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. So already happening, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's how I got with Shlomo. And then... You know, a lot of times there were nobody but me and him on the stage, and a lot of times everybody and their uncle would come up there, you know, with an instrument, and Shlomo was so kind-hearted, mm-hmm. he wouldn't turn them away, you know. So did you tour with him? In a manner of speaking. I mean, I wasn't traveling overseas with him, but I was going to a lot of places with him, a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. And we walked, yeah, I'm going, it's so many tangents, there's so many stories to tell. I was saying about that book that this one compiled about these stories, and some of them are pretty outlandish stories. And I was walking uptown from a gig in the West Village on a late, late Saturday night, and we walked into H&H Bagels on 79th and, and mm-hmm. West End, or Broadway, where it is. <clears throat> and um, there, was a, there was a black man in the door, and you know, holding the door of the people and getting some tips. And and he saw me. And he, you know, he knew they knew that I used to run with Shlomo because I'd be up with Shlomo at three o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. coming back. And he, and, and he shakes his head like this, man, I miss my rabbi. I miss Reb Shlomo. And Azriel, the guy that I was walking with, and he turns and he looks at me like really spooked, and he says to me, "Those stories are true, aren't they?" I said, "Yeah, they're true. They're true." Nah. He had a flock of people living in the substation of the Metro North Rail- Railway on the west side next to the, the Hudson River. There's a whole, like, corridors, like, under the ground, like catacombs. And they and they took up residence there. And apparently he used to go down there late at night. And he'd bring them food and clothes and um, money and sing for them and cry with them and listen to them. And he'd pay people salary to stay off heroin and things like that. Crazy stuff. Pretty wild. He never gave less than twenty dollars. If somebody asked him for charity, mm-hmm. he would he he would do it with so much respect, and he would thank them. He would ask them their name and give them some self. He would try to give them self esteem. I never give less than a quarter. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> but so you spent the last two years of his life with him, essentially. Pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, more than a lot of other people would have. Yeah. I mean, he's a legend now. He's in a cater of type of celebrity that's you know iconic and. And the rest, and he, um, I think people would like really, you know, it would be a hard choice between going up in uh, Jeff Bezos' spaceship, you know, floating for 10 minutes or meeting Shlomo and listening to him sing, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, he's legendary. And uh, I was just very fortunate. So how many times have you been married? Oh my God. Well, the truth is I never really actually got married. Ever? I'm joking. <laughs> I've been married more than once, Danny. Okay. I'm I'm a little surprised that you asked me that. Because I was going to ask you, <clears throat> when was your first marriage? Was it before or after you got into music? And it was before. Okay. So how old I were got, you? I was 23, and you know my kids. Yeah. I was 23, and I met their mom in uh, Bob's health food store. She was a customer. Okay. It comes back to Bob's. <laughs> It's always about Bob's, and um, I I had a real I had a real sweet tooth for her, you know. 
and she wouldn't give me the time of day. And I was always like, can I get you this? Can I can I uh-huh. put the oats in the bag for you? You know, whatever it is. And she, she didn't give me 10 cents, you know, mm-hmm. but of time. And then one day she needed something and I said, oh, I have that, I have that in my house. It's right down the block. Here's the key. Mm-hmm. And she went, we started talking. Anyway, um, I was 23. Jesse and Kieran, my stepsons, were five and three when I met them. Mm-hmm. And I got married to her. They were not much older than that. And then we had Danny and Josh. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm really name young. Is Danny, I know, my and you have a brother, John. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's so many stories to tell. I could tell you stories till the cows come home and extraordinary things, like extraordinary uh, complexities and synchronicities and, and, and uh, coincidences, you know, with a lot of layers and like, Having a relationship with Shlomo Kalibach, having a relationship yeah. with Doug Henning, having a relationship with Rabbi Ari Kaplan, the genius author. He was my rabbi for like six years. I was in his home all the time. Mm-hmm. And Rabbi Freifeld, and then going. So know, were you were you pretty into the religion when you met your wife? I yeah. What happened was I I pulled away from a, a total different iteration after high school. I went. Mm-hmm. I went to college for a little while, and then I wanted to make money. Where did you go to college? Queens? I, thought, I went to Queens College there, and I also went, I did a couple of years at Nassau Community College. I went okay. back to school for me- pre-medical science, and that's where all the music started happening, and Mark Fried and Shlomo Karlibach, and I I uh-huh. went to all of my most responsible friends, like people that had real jobs, not hippies, mm-hmm. and I said, I don't know what to do, you know, school, <laughs> you know, physical therapist or physician assistant. I was a paramedic, you know, at Long Beach Hospital. Yeah. And... I don't know what to do. And all of them said unequivocally, go go for the music. You'll forever regret that you didn't try, you know? So, um, yeah, we got married. And I I, I left, I was working in Manhattan. I left college. I was working in the cosmetics industry. And um, I had a really nice job. I was like 19 years old. I had a junior executive position. Mm -hmm. I was making what would be equivalent to a really handsome salary now. And, a car, an air travel card, an expense account, the whole nine yards. I worked with models, you know, like, <laughs> you know, that woman, what's his name? Keith Richards is married to Patty Hansen. She was a real knockout. I used to be in, you know, in the back with these chicks, you know, putting makeup on them. Anyway, I was terribly unhappy. It was very superficial. It was sex, drugs, rock and roll. And I, I quit the job. And then that whole Grand Canyon, whatever thing. And, and I started... I got I got encouraged by a, a woman who was uh, a counselor in my high school. I kept a relationship with her, and she led me to some things that got me into the healing arts, and got me back into the Judaism. And then I I started, you know, as often happens, tragically, mm-hmm. when when relatively unaffiliated people become newly observant again, the Baal Baali Teshuvah. Mm-hmm they really take it to the nines and they make such a mess of things, you know, and, and bring so much discord into the home. Rabbi Eidin Steinzel wrote a book called Teshuvah, and in that book, he in no uncertain terms tells people, slow down, just slow down. You know, mm-hmm. don't tell your parents that their house is trafe all of a sudden, you know, you can't sit at the table. You'll get paper plates, you know, something like that. Anyway, you know, they get really carried away with it. And um, 
just have to. to so so you're saying in. that you got carried away? Is that I got carried in many. Yeah, I would. I grew peyot. I, I wore. A, I used to go to the young Israel in Long Beach. I was mm-hmm. wearing a long black kapata, like a mm-hmm. like a smoking jacket, like you know, the yeah. students would wear. I okay. used to go to Williamsburg and pick up stuff and. I buy books I couldn't even so read. You're like I'm all in, yeah. I was all in, you know, and 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 I was, you know, I was a bit of a schmohawk. It's a lot of it is like, is a, it's a, it's a, a naive spiritual elitism or something. But you think, became you know? very passionate about Judaism, and it, it's yeah. in your music. You yeah, know? it's all in there, man. There's it's a lot a, of hints in the songs that people don't even know. I like I I I code it, you know. Yeah. There's a lot of a lot of nuggets from Torah nuggets in there. Yeah. Right? They're very deep spiritual songs, and and that's you. You know, you went into healing, spiritual healing, yeah. physical healing. I think you know you talked about abuse in your childhood. It seems like you came from um, abuse, and then you decided time to heal, and not just yourself, but you wanted to heal people around you. And the stories you told me about Rab Shlomo, he's also sounded like he was a healer. It's all about you know hugging people, and they're crying, and they're trying to heal, and there's like a lot of healing going on. It's true, and and I appreciate that, and thanks for your kind words. And I'll tell you that I also do a lot of Torah learning, and I uh-huh. I, I I have a whole huge file on different uh, drashot that I've written, essays and things, and I got three books in the works. And I'm I'm learning with a phenomenal uh, Rav in Jerusalem, uh-huh. Yaakov Shepherd. He has a yeshiva right where King David's tomb is on the Hartzion in uh-huh. Jerusalem. And um, it is very passionate. Um, I'm not as rigid as I used to be. Like my relationship with with Torah is like I'm keeping it really honest and really real with me and Hakadosh Baruch Hu, You know, I I used to do things that I really was uncomfortable with, and I would squirm, and I was really unhappy doing it. But I you have to do it this way, you know. And mm-hmm. I'm just I'm not about that anymore, you know. But yeah, there's there's so much in it, and you know what's ironic? Check this out. When I was in fourth grade in in Laurelton, I went to this PS one fifty six, and they yanked me and a Hispanic student, and I think one of the kids, a girl, was from from India, and we had like the five or six different you know representatives, and we were called the the. Um, I forgot they had a name for us, right? Representatives, you know. And the great thing was that we got to get out of class. Like, they'd send us over to another school for the afternoon, you know. We just sat up there Mm -hmm. and they'd ask us questions. The funniest thing was, somebody asks me, so do the Jewish people have any kind of special music that they do, like, that's, like, really, like, a Jewish kind of music, you know? And all I knew was Havana Gila at that point and maybe a couple of songs from you know, Passover. Mm-hmm. And I said, mm, yeah, not really, you know, not, nah. <laughs> and then I went on to become like, I was traveling around all over Europe and Scandinavia and places at playing at like conferences with thousands of people and presenting about Jewish music and spirituality. It was just such a rip. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was just, the, the incongruity was just like stunning. <laughs> so, you came in here tonight specifically. We've been wanting to do this for a while, but you're like, you came in because you have a big surgery on your hands coming up, which. Thanks you, for reminding you me. You were nervous. I was, about. I was having a good hour here, you know. And no, I'm, but you know joking. what? Think about it. You're a healer. Mm. 
You're an expert healer. Healing if anybody's going to heal, it's going to be you, Seth, you know? I'm just putting this together now because, right. like, I'm thinking about your life story is a story of healing. It is. Kings in the Fields is, is a healing. That's the healing odyssey, really. That's the... How so? Um, because, first of all, when I started to write those songs, um, a lot of a lot of things that had been um, bifurcated, separated, you know, in my in my being that I was uncomfortable with because I wanted unity. Um, when the music and and the, and the and the poetry behind the music started to fuse it together, so the, like the king, the kings in the field. I sat down and I just. I sort of came out of a, a trance, and, and it was on the paper. I don't remember writing it, really. And I've heard that from other musicians, songwriters. So the lyrics are, on I go, looking for home, aching, tired, all alone. So that's my broken life. You know, I'm in exile. Mm -hmm. I'm uncomfortable. I'm tired. How I've been searching for him, his loving hand reaching me to hold. I didn't mm -hmm. know how to have a God connection. Yeah. And it's so damn hard to see if he's ever noticed me. Yeah. And they tell me, don't be afraid. You're coming on some sweet, sweet rain because the king's in the field. And then the, the next one around is a sister here so full of fear. She's crying and wild, a lovesick child. She's not even sure what she's crying for. So long asleep, she dreams no more. And that's the Shekhinah in exile. And that's the Am Yisrael. Explain that to people so, okay. who don't understand. Crying and wild, she's a lovesick child. With lovesick child, the Shekhinah is lovesick. Mm -hmm. Adam and Eve were lovesick. They got booted out of Eden. They got evicted, mm -hmm. and and we we miss we miss our place of origin. You know, like we come from that, and it's pretty traumatic business. You know, um, getting stuffed into the sausage for you know fifty to one hundred and twenty years. You know, and trying to work it out. Mm -hmm. That awkward moment between life and death, mm -hmm. <laughs> between birth and death. Life is that awkward moment between birth and death. I think we got to hear the song now. Oh God! You know how hard that song is to play, Danny. You want me to try? I'll try to play it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, uh, I'm gonna offer an apology in advance um, for butchering my own song. <clears throat> and I can't. I truthfully, there, there's some really exotic chords in there that it's just impossible. I can't. So unless you want to kneel down here, and I'll show you where to put your fingers, like count <laughs> it in. I'll do my best. Okay. There's one other song I wanted to do. I wanted to do that Rosh Hashanah song also. Okay. Maybe I'll just modify it and I'll play part, I'll play part of this. Okay. On I go Looking for home Aching tired Come on, Dan, this is terrible. I'm sorry. No, it's not terrible. All alone. Oh, forgive me. How I've been searching for him. His loving hand reaching me to hold. It's so damn hard to see. If he's ever noticed me And they tell me not to be afraid You're gone, coming on some sweet, sweet rain So 
Blessed be his holy name. Forever blessed be his holy name. Sister here, so full of fear, crying and wild. So sorry, people. A lovesick child. My hands have a mind of their own. <laughs> she's not even sure what she's crying for. So long now asleep. She dreams no more. So I tell her, listen to me. He ain't too far to see. And believe me, holy little one, you're gonna see a new rising sun. Because the king is in the field, you can talk to him, he's real. He's calling you, he's accepting all your pain. He will open up your eyes, you begin to realize. Been with you all your very days. Forever blessed be His holy name. His holy name. I love it. What, oh. what about this Rosh Hashanah song? Yeah, know? I was telling you the story. I know the basic story. I don't know the real, the details, the name of the person. Anyway, on Rosh Hashanah, we sing, and Shlomo wrote a beautiful enigma for this. I have a different one. So, um, there's a prayer called, how do you pronounce it? Unatane Tokev. They say Unasana Tokev, you know, the way the Ashkenazi. <clears throat> it was a person who had been uh, brutally tortured by... Um, the government body a long time ago and he was they were they were they were attempting to force him to convert away from judaism to christianity catholicism and he refused and they said you're not gonna like it you better convert and he wouldn't do it so he kept he kept his faith and they chopped off one of his hands as a punishment and they they, they pressed him again chopped off his other hand He's without hands and feet, and on Rosh Hashanah he crawls up onto the bima, and they open the they open the ark, and he recites this prayer that he wrote called Unatana Toka, and it's a it's a prayer about, um, you know, who shall live and who shall die, who by fire, who by water, who by, you know, well the, there's a Leonard Cohen song about it, and um, 
and uh, it's very it's very dramatic and it's very it's very pungent it's very sad and there this 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 hook at the end the lyrics uh, Shlomo's, Shlomo's uh, melody was Ki like a shepherd oh watching over his flock looking at the sheep underneath his staff tapping each one on the head counting and remembering and doing an inventory not hitting us on the head with a stick counting us lovingly because he cares about every single one and then he calculates the fate of that individual for the year and if it's not going to be a pretty, pretty, pretty picture, um, it's what I like to refer to as, you know, sometimes God loves us with a very terrible love. And backstory is that, you know, we're fixing our karma by suffering in certain circumstances. We shouldn't know from it, but it's a terrible love, you know. We, we see it as horror show, and I don't know. I don't understand all that stuff. Moses could figure it out, you know. I'm not trying. <laughs> okay. So this is uh, just that last stanza of Kiva Kavat like a shepherd. Get that little drop to you. That's what Oh, and 
love you so long. that the, those lyrics provoke yeah um you know the, a rabbi with production. his hands and feet cut off well that's yeah i mean that's the that's the that's the intro that's the opening act you yeah. know and then they're talking you know it's talking about this this time of year where i mean it, you know if you go in for this stuff if you if you go in for this stuff if, you, if you'll believe in it you know i mean i believe in it i'm lucky i'm really lucky it's just like i don't have a hard time with a lot of it and you know, karma. We we we're, we're on the wheel of karma. We're in a, we're in a Gilgul. We're in a, in a re, we're in one of our incarnations. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where the word incarnation comes from carne, the Latin for meat. When mm. you're in the, you're in the meat bag, you're incarnated, and then you're mm. when you leave it, you're excarnated. <laughs> anyway, so uh, yeah, he, you know, it's it's basically an inventory at the end of the year. Um, which also celebrates the creation of the world and the birth and the creation of Adam and, and Eve, and sort of like the beginning, the beginning of time as we know it, not like the eons of cosmic, you know, galactic billion year, you know, billion light year time, mm -hmm. and um, and 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 there's a reckoning, and we get a chance to like you know pull it together, but you you, you realize. I mean, I remember when in, in Long Beach at, at, the, at that synagogue, Bachorei Hamid, there was a kid named Jan something, and he had bad asthma, and there was a, a, a fire in his house on Friday night, and Shabbos morning, people were at the shul, and people were like flabbergasted and in shock, and there was a fire, the fire department came put it out, but there was so much smoke, and the kid, Nebuchadnezzar, died on Yom Kippur night. And it's like, last, wow. Yom, Kippur, last Yom Kippur, we didn't know. That was going to happen, you know, mm -hmm. and you don't know who's going to be healthy and who's going to be sick and who's going to be poor and rich and things turn, things turn on a dime. I mean, things are in so much flux right now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it, it, so so. I I, I want to make sure I'm not being disrespectful in asking this because I think it was touchy when I asked you before. How many times were you? But uh... but, <laughs> but you know, yeah. But you've you've had more than one marriage, right? I have, and um. And why is this that's, that's important a to that's you? A, well, it's not that it's important to me. This is just part of your story that I want to <clears throat> okay. talk to you about. Okay. Um, so going through that is a very tough thing, right? When when <clears throat> when you kind of um, divorce is especially if there are ch children involved. Mm -hmm. When I when I got divorced from uh, uh, my children's mother, um, I I wow I was in exile. Mm -hmm. I was in exile literally because you were was, crazy about her from the start you talked about the bob stories i was crazy and, about her i was crazy yeah. about the kids and i thought we had it going on and um you know i was i was very young i was very naive i didn't really have my my wits about me how old were you when that divorce happened because you were young when it started i married her when i was 23 yeah. hi lisa in case you're listening we haven't spoken to each other in a long time but i wish her well um so I was 23 when I married her, and I calculated that we stayed married between about 14 and a half years. That's a long run. Mm -hmm. It was a long run. And um, 
I was, it was agony. It was agony. Because they, they were all living in the house on Walnut Street, right there behind Gino's Pizza. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was the guy that had to go. You know, she said, you want me to leave? So I stupidly just, okay, I guess that's what I have to do. And I left. And I'd come over to see the kids and all this. And I was literally, like, falling apart the seams, crying. And, and, and she's like, oh, we all seem to be okay. And like that, you know, mm-hmm. like it was no big deal. But sometimes the, one of the kids would get in the middle and, like, I have to leave. And she's holding like only happened once we were like literally like tugging on him and i let i let him go i was like i'm not doing this this kid you know mm-hmm. it was horrible it's horrible gladys over folks <laughs> stronger than ever better better but, than new but you know you you had faith through that right you had you, did that help you well you, that's when i started not long after that the music thing started to happen and i literally and I've had this kind of feedback from other people, you know, so, oh, mm-hmm. it's like a, a healing, a healing message. But I, I, had, I had fans around the world and people that knew my songs and knew the lyrics. And I'm a sing. fan. Thank you. Yeah. I'm a fan of yours. And, uh, and, and people would send me, I don't have them anymore, but people would send me, you know, letters and emails and kids would make cards and like it was going through a really hard time, a really rough patch. And the only thing that held me together was you know, this music. And I had that experience too. I felt like the song was literally like a life raft in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of nowhere. It was the only thing keeping me afloat mm-hmm. was the music. When you wrote that song, It's a Question of Faith, uh, was that kind of speaking to your divorce? No, I wrote a different song that was about that was about the divorce. That was also on the first CD. It's called The Jewel. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I look at you. What do I see? Your face turns ahead. You're telling a lie. It was all about like lies and you know. I remember that song, yeah. Yeah, because I know deep inside. You know, I got this idea from that song. I was in the bitter end one night playing, and we did a cover of um, uh, "While My Guitar Gently Weeps," George Harrison's masterpiece. And that opening line: "I look at you. I look at you all. See the love there that's sleeping." I said, "Oh wow, sleeping love. That's a dormant, you know, soul mm-hmm. energy." You know, and yeah. yeah, so that was like, because you had that special connection and then it's ruptured. Yeah. It's horrible. It's horrible. You know, John Lennon and uh, what's her name? Yoko Ono. Um, he left for a year. They called it The Lost Weekend. He was running around mm-hmm. with Harry Nilsson and he was going with this girl, May Pang or something. And then they, they got, he came home after a year. He went home and th- somebody asked him, uh, you know, how did this work? How did this happen that you're back? You know, it's like mm-hmm. a year. And he was so, he was such a uh, comedian. He said, "Well, guess the separation didn't work out. You know, <laughs> <So> <laughs> the, mar- the marriage didn't work. Out. The divorce didn't work out. Yeah, yeah. But um, so so tell me about the song Question of Faith because that sounds like it could also have been, you know, about a question of faith." Yeah, it's a question of faith. Do you have? I recorded that in Peter Himmelman's studio out in Santa Monica. Uh, it's a question of faith. Do you have what it takes t- to look for strength inside of you? Believe you can go higher, however many lifetimes it will take. Like tenacity. Mm-hmm. It's a hell of a place. Life with all of its games. Try to see through it. This yeah, was also, also written post-divorce, right? Yeah, all of it. I never wrote a song before. Before I that's was on interesting. My own. Yeah. Wow. So. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, the faith really got you through a lot of hard times. Yeah, you know, um, my parents were 
for better or worse, you know, I, I, re I refer to my parents as terminal optimists. They were terminally optimistic. You know, my mother told me a story that my dad had put all the money he had saved into a, a luncheonette in New Jersey. They moved, they lived upstairs, mm -hmm. and he was trying to make it in this business. And it, it fizzled out. And um, she said, we took a walk, and we were somewhere in the park, and we had a quarter. We had 25 cents between us. That's all the money we had. Mm -hmm. I said, what did you do? She said, we, we split a hot dog. It was a quarter. And we went home and had you. <laughs> and then she said, one blessing brings another blessing, you know? Yeah. Instead of worrying, oh, how am I going to feed these kids? No, are you kidding? Yeah. They're going to throw it at us, you know? So, so you bring this story up to, to, to illustrate what? The, the, the faith, having the, having the ability to access, to even know, to have the, like, to, you know, some people have a lot of IQ and not a lot of EQ. Mm-hmm. So, like emotional intelligence, and to have to have a um, an emotional vocabulary or a spiritual vocabulary that you can relate to a word like faith. Like, what is it? Faith. It's nebulous, you know. Mm -hmm. Belief, faith, you know. And um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I was able to turn to that. Um, at times, I turned to other things that were not healthy um, means of coping. Mm -hmm. Um, that you know took a toll on me and and, and others. Certain substances, is what something like that. Yeah, there. yeah, something yeah. like that. You know, I was a golden boy in Long Beach at Long Beach Hospital. I was, I, I worked in the in the physical therapy department as a massage therapist, mm -hmm. and I was an emergency room based paramedic in the ER at Long Beach Hospital because mm -hmm. the the perimeter was was relatively small. So you didn't have to be patrolling in like in Manhattan when I worked for EMS, east side, west side, 100th Street, 1st Street, yeah, always on the road. So they got their money's worth out of you and you were a tech in the ER until the bell went off and then you go get the, the, the people. Mm -hmm. And um, so all the doctors knew me and when the divorce started, before the divorce, when the stress and the strain of whatever it was that was er eroding the marriage, um, I started getting vicious, vicious migraine headaches, like vicious migraines, like a plaster me to the bed for days, and mm -hmm. uh, cluster headaches. And I went to them in the emergency room and they, they gave me some really strong, you know, opiate painkiller. And, you know, it took the edge off. And they would just feed them to me like M&Ms, you know, the doctor said, hey, how many you want, 100 of them? Mm -hmm. I was like, no, I don't want 100 of them, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I guess I got snagged up on that stuff pretty, pretty harsh. Um, yeah. but the, it's it's a whole nother story. I mean, the the opioid crisis right now, because so many so many doctors like I would have a discussion with them about I can't use that. You know, well you you broke your wrist. I said I know, but there's other stuff. Okay, I, I said doc, please don't. Right, doesn't give me any injection in the ER, and I'm getting ready to leave. And he says, okay, I'm going to write you a prescription for either this thing or this thing and they're both like strong narcotics uh -huh. i was like hello yeah <laughs> mr potato head <laughs> yeah what part of no don't you understand right, it's a complete right. sentence you know <laughs> you know i hope you know i bring this stuff up not to god forbid embarrass you or make you feel uncomfortable but because i know people listening go through this stuff too and i think i got a song for you okay i don't want to go into the details when i was married uh in my last iteration of uh husbandry and whiffery. Um, 
she was, uh, she called the shots and she was, she thought that it would be like a really big stain on not just me, but her because of, you know, like the, the struggles that I had with substances and, um, she didn't want me to talk about it publicly, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, now I think, you know, if you're doing well, it's, <laughs> It's a show you, of strength. You can inspire you know? people and you yeah, can help yeah. people who are going yeah, through it, you know? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Okay, so this song is this is a tongue-in-cheek <clears throat> ode to uh, addiction and the de the denial. The, the punchline is about the denial to, this, to, the, to okay. one's own self, right? So it's called Leaving for Rehab Tomorrow. Uh -huh. Okay. Okay, <clears throat> here we go. I got a feeling in my bones. Yeah, I'm sweating and I'm cold. I need something to make me well. As far as I can tell, now I'm walking down. Man, hoping he will lend a hand Cause I've been down to the ATM The weather's dry and it's overspent So I'm, I'm leaving for rehab tomorrow Cause I, I still got a little stage You know I'm not quite ready to give it up So Brother, won't you spare me a little cash? <clears throat> My mind is burning up inside Can't find no place to hide The monkey's got his hooks in me Why won't he just let me be? No roof, no bed, no place to stay Streets getting riddled by the day I think it's time to make a move I just got to step up my groove So I'm leaving for rehab tomorrow Cause I, I still got a little stand You know I'm not quite ready to move it up So brother won't you spare me a little cash Smoke and choke and do a line Cook and shoot and maybe die I want that to be my story Try to find the true glory Dear Lord, won't you please Try not to give up on me It's gonna be a difficult dance If I don't, maybe no chance So I'm leaving for rehab Tomorrow Cause I, I still got a little stage Yeah, you know, I'm not quite ready to give it up So, brother, won't you spare me a little cash? Yeah, brother, won't you spare me a little, a little cash? Whoa, brother, won't you spare me a little cash? Leaving tomorrow, yes, I'm, 
songs for other people or sold uh, any songs to other people uh yeah not anything major i mean i i'm hoping that there's still uh I, I got with a with a what do you call them music supervisors mm -hmm. that play songs in soundtracks and i have a my my a lot of my work uploaded on their platform and it gets listened to i've had stuff on tv many years ago that you know that had some exposure and got some royalties for that and some kudos and i said let's see one two three about five or six people have covered some of my songs mm -hmm. and uh i haven't written specifically did i write i think you I, know, did. I did I wrote you know the the musician brian highland the name sounds familiar he wrote, one of his big hits was uh itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini. bikini yeah there you go so he was over the house uh and uh, I Where played him. Where do you get these guys? How do you find these? Well, he—he's married to my friend's mom. Oh, that helps. And uh, I played <laughs> yeah. him some of your music. Did you? And he was blown away by it. And he was uh, like, yeah, He was asking, "He's like, well, you know, does this guy write songs for people?" And I if said, he wants me to write, I'll, I can write. You know, with after the surgery, next Wednesday I'm doing the the first round on the right hand. Two weeks later, they're gonna open it back up and then graft from my body onto the palm. That's the second surgery. So that has to heal up. It takes two to three months. Then you get to start on the right side. You do the mm -hmm. same thing all over again. But I can write without the guitar. So what? Know? What is this? The problem with your hands? Ah, okay. D u p u y t r e n s. Dupatrons contracture. Um, it affects people. It sounds like it's something from out of space. <laughs> Probably is. Dupatrons contracture. <laughs> Danger, Will Robbins. <laughs> We come from planet Dubatron. Okay. So it's genetic. Yeah. My maternal grandfather had it. <clears throat> I remember going to the hospital with my mom when I was very young to pick him up and both his hands. He had huge hands and they were all in bandages. They did them both at the same time. They don't do that now. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's uh, people of Nordic extraction are prone to it and they call it Vikings disease as a result. That's their nickname. But um, the the... The tissue under the palm mm -hmm. grows out of control and it winds itself around your tendons and your muscles. Oh. And like if you see a vine growing around a tree tree limb and yanking it down, you know, like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's what it does. So like I have very compensated, yeah, compromised yeah. extension. That's called saying, extension yeah. flexion I can do. And you know it's, it's amazing that you're still able to play the guitar with your fingers the way they are currently. <sighs> I did massage for years with my right hand. My pinky was like, you know what I used to do? I used to tuck my pinky against my palm and I'd work like that. Yeah. Because otherwise it would poke people, you know? So maybe you should start writing songs for like <clears throat> famous musicians while well, you're healing. Well, uh, any any famous musicians that you think would be wanting me to write songs for them, not for free. Right. Um, that would be wonderful. Who were your favorite musicians growing up? Who were like the big Seth Glass influences? I remember as a child, my parents. My parents were very musical and also very into comedy. My both parents were comedians. I tell you, my mother. My mother did a gig at Al, uh, Avery Fisher Hall, opening up for uh, Alan King. 
Really? Time. Yeah, they, uh-huh. they called themselves the Entertainers. <laughs> the Entertainers. It was her and her partner. Uh-huh. And her first partner, the other Entertainer, check this out. She was doing it, they were doing it, kind of making money, going to all the shuls and the senior centers and all this. And then her partner, Eileen, had to disappear like overnight. And she did with her daughter and her daughter's family. Mm. P.S. They went into the witness reprotection, the witness witness protection program, mm-hmm. because Eileen's daughter was married to the real Henry Hill, Goodfellas, Ray Liotta. Oh wow! That was he was she was married to him, and he snitched on the mob to get off a sentence, and then he was a marked man, so they put him in. So anyway, the entertainers folded for. Period of time mm-hmm. because of the mob, you know. <laughs> you can't make this stuff. And your up, dad you know? also did comedy. My father did comedy. My father used to like to call himself a raconteur, and he would uh-huh. take you on a walk down memory lane with all of the Jewish uh, kibitzers and storytellers and uh, history of comedy, and then tell jokes and sing a song. You know? So you have a lot of that you got from him. Yeah, they, both of them. I have. I know so many jokes. Yeah. It's, it's disgusting. I know so many jokes. Uh-huh. I've had to decompress from like compulsively, like machine gunning people with jokes. You know, like <laughs> I have five friends. They say to me, "One a day. That's it. One, no one and one." <laughs> so, so what about musicians? Who are the musicians? My grandfather played piano badly. He, he was self-taught, and he played it well enough that I could recognize he was playing "Swanee River." But mm-hmm. I also knew that there was a lot of like wrong chords thrown in there, you know. So I used to sit and listen to him. Uh, they got me the guitar when I was young. My parents were always involved with the local um, Jewish center. They would do the, the Broadway shows, like Fiddle mm-hmm. on the Roof, Guys and Dolls, you know. And I'd be in it, like, you know, I had a nice voice. I had a high voice when I was young. And they'd put me in, do like, you do a solo bit, you know, right. dress up like a leprechaun or something. So I was always mm-hmm. around that shtick, you know. And I remember when that my father brought home a, a Barbara Streisand album. Mm-hmm. That, they, we'd listen to music. And then the Beatles, the Beatles went at Sullivan. And then we got Hard Day's Night or whatever it was, the album. Mm-hmm. And me and my sister, Laura, we, we would always, she'd always get to be Paul. I, we both wanted to be Paul because mm-hmm. I thought we thought he was better looking or something. But <laughs> I'd, have to, I'd have to like you know accept the lower position of John, which is ironic because the truth is if you look at the the way they're set up, it's like it's John's band. He's in the front, and mm-hmm. Paul and George are singing behind him. But anyway, let the Beatles, and then I, I got really into. Um, I used to always listen to the radio in the '60s and the '70s. Was a good time for music. There's a lot of R and B, Sly and the Family Stone, Stevie Wonder. You know, I grew up in that neighborhood. Also, it was it was soul and R and B, and that's like just such great music, you know. Yeah. And then you know the Beatles. And then I got oh, I got smitten with Hendrix. Hendrix, 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 man. I was obsessed with Hendrix. Um, he, had, he had a really beautiful, soft, sweet, quiet side. People think of him as the wild man of Borneo because of his stage antics. Uh, but he, um, he, was, he was like a real gentleman and really polite and really like almost like self-effacing, like, you know, didn't want to handle a compliment. Yeah, Beatles, Hendrix. Um, I liked, I got into jazz fusion. Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell was a huge, huge influence. Stevie Wonder. And I got a chance to meet Stevie Wonder. I got a hug from him. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That's <laughs> that cool. Day. Oh, my God. That was incredible. What, what was that story? I was in the Apple store in the Grove near the farmer's market. Uh-huh. And I walked in there. I was going to check my email. 
whatever. I didn't have a cell phone at the time. And I walk in and I see, I never saw him standing, or I was never like close enough to him. He was always sitting at the piano and I just had it in my head that he was short. He's like a tree. He's gotta be like six, six. And he's not fat, but he's like thick, like, like a tree. And he's standing there and I said, oh my God, this is Stevie Wonder. So I went over, to, I'm not shy around celebrities. I went over to his bodyguard and I said, hey, can I say hello? So he says, um, Stevie, somebody wants to say hi. He says, go ahead. So I'm walking towards him and Stevie Wonder holds out his hand like this and I grab his hand. Mm-hmm. He says, hi, I'm Stevie. I said, yeah, I know that part. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody knows Stevie Wonder. I said, I'm Seth. He says, hey, Seth. I said, oh, Stevie, thank you so much for the music. You know, I want to tell you, when I, I tell people, that people ask, what's your favorite musician? I said, if I had to nominate a, a musical mascot for planet Earth in the Milky Way galaxy, I nominate Stevie Wonder. And he said, oh, Seth, that's so nice. Thank you. I said, thanks for the music, man. So like, bye-bye. And I turn, I, I do a half turn and I spin back and I said, Stevie? He says, what, Seth? I said, can I get a hug? <laughs> <laughs> he draped himself over my shoulders and he bear hugged me and he put his head on my shoulder <laughs> like this. I only regret that I didn't try to harmonize with him in that moment, you know? <laughs> but I, I broke away from him before he did. I was like, I was overwhelmed. That was like a cool. day that was just, wow. Yeah, wow. wow. Good for you asking for a hug from Stevie Wonder. That's pretty cool. Hey, you know. It's this Karbach uh, influence <laughs> right there, the, going around and collecting hugs and giving hugs. It says, three things don't come back. The sped arrow, the spoken word, and the neglected opportunity. Chances are I wouldn't have had the opportunity to hug him again. Huh. Right? Strike while the iron is hot. One of my favorite songs of yours uh-huh. is Eyes of a Child. Oh. Um, I get a feeling you're asking me to play it now. Well, I want you to play it, but <clears throat> I want you to give a little background on it first. Well, um, that's another. It, I will. It's, uh, here's an interesting thing, Danny. When I started to perform, I was solo. I was, then I started playing, like, not just in, like, you know, local garages, but I was playing, I started getting, I had a relationship with the Bitter End on Bleecker Street in, in the village. Mm-hmm. And a lot of famous people cut their teeth there in music, you know. And uh, bottom line, I also played it up the block and a few mm-hmm. of them. And yet you had um, like 45 minutes tops set, you know. And they have like band after band going through it. So you got to like chick chock in and out, right? Mm-hmm. And I first started to play, I, I, I wanted to express myself and I would, I would introduce the song with this like drasha about like the meaning behind the song mm-hmm. and meaning, a, a speech yeah, a and an interpretation and yeah. and a, analysis you know and and then people saying like you know play the songs we want to hear the songs you know because you only have a chance to play like four songs now you could have played seven songs or eight songs yeah. so i started to just leave it out and just play the song and the most interesting thing happened people would come up to me after the show and they would say Oh, you know that song, blah blah blah. Question of faith. Whatever it is, when you say that yada yada line, you mean what you meaning is like this about the way the sun hits the thing on the window, whatever they said. And my first instinct was to say to them, mm, "No, that's my song, and what I mean is." I said, like, "You know what? Everybody has a different impression of mm-hmm. you know an aesthetic, a muse, you know." And and they taught me a lot about my songs by me just call, shutting my mouth and and just right. playing a song. Shut up and play your guitar. And um, 
Yeah, and then I got a band because like, oh, you gotta have a band. And then people were saying to me, well, like, ditch the band. We, we want to hear the lyrics. We don't. It just takes away competing with the lyrics, mm -hmm. you know. And I thought I had the coolest band. I had a great band, but the band went, and that was certainly more economical, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> All right. Eyes of a Child. So the Eyes of a Child is about. It's really about the aging process. It's really about getting older. Now I'm, I'm doing what I told you I stopped doing a long time ago. I'm explaining the song. Mm -hmm. um, it's about the aging process and how, when when we're children, like a summer, a summer feels like a year when you're a kid and you're off school. You know, it's just mm -hmm. a huge amount of time. Now it's like it's over. You know, it's oh, right. you know, Memorial Day, oh, Labor Day, <laughs> another barbecue, mm -hmm. back to work, and. But but this but the 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 lack of the stress to um, earn and produce and keep the the boat floating, mm -hmm. the innocence of childhood, you know, um, and 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 the and the on, the honesty of childhood, and the wonder of childhood, you know, the kids are in the bathtub and they don't want to come out of the bathtub. It's like, come on, bathtub's over, it's time for bed. Mm -hmm. They're just fascinated with the water. It's like they can't get enough of it. Oh, you see what happens when you push the thing in this way and it makes a noise and <laughs> yeah. splashing. And it's like they just, you know, it's children. And you know what Shlomo Kalimach said? He said, always says in, in the Chumash, in the five books of Moses, it says, uh, God said to Moses, I want you to tell this over to the B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. Like, always calling us children. And Rabbi Shlomo said that he wants us to be like children. He wants us to have an open heart. He wants us to be aware. He wants us to be in wonder. He wants us to be amazed because it's pretty amazing stuff, you know? And um, we start getting older and we have responsibilities and we lose our innocence. And you know, there's, there's a teaching that when a, when a child learns a piece of information for the first time, it's like writing on a piece of virgin white paper. And when you learn something when you're older, like 30, 40, 50, 60, it's like writing on paper that's been written on and erased and written on and erased. Now you're writing over it again, but it's that first impression. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, we, we, we get sad. I, I'm getting sad in the story of the song because things are not shiny anymore. You know, mm -hmm. hurry up, we gotta go. I gotta go back to work, you know, uh, whatever. Stop playing with that, you know? And you get jaded. You get jaded and, 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 and the colors fade. And if we hang out with kids, and Rabbi Nachman says, the most amazing story, he says, one of the best things you could do for a child is leave them alone. Because they know how to do life. They need to know where the boundaries are. They need to be protected. But benign neglect, Cecilia Sacro, it's called benign neglect. You just let them alone. Let them, don't tell them how to, don't don't hold each other on the shoulder and sing and make up things and mm -hmm. fantasize or whatever you call make believe you know. Anyway, so when we when we when we vicariously experience the perception and the the effect of the that the perception has on the on the the being of the child, we can gain back the wonder. We get nachas. Nachas is like vicarious joy, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's really what the song is about, you know. The loss of innocence. Were you thinking about your own kids when you wrote this song? When I wrote that song, all I had was the first three chords. I had nothing else. I had it. You know, I liked the cadence of it. But what I did was I, I learned a lot of these 
you know, unusual chord voicings when I studied classical guitar. It's very different than playing rock and pop, you know, and, you know, Baroque music and different types of things. So I had these chords and I would just move them around on the guitar or change a finger and it would sound quite exotic because the tonalities are not lined up the same way. There's a lot of ringing and pulsating and all this. And I had these three chords. And God, can I remember how I got around to doing that? I probably got like a hook in my head, like eyes of a child, eyes of a child. Like we get obsessed with a little bit of a concept. Okay. Kings in the field, you know, question yeah. of faith, you know. Yeah. It's like all so important, you know. Right, right. When you play this song now, do you think about your kids? Of course. Of course. Of course. And now that you have a kid, but you're such a big kid. You have you have a long expiration date on your on your on your wonder your wonderment you know that's nice oh no, you are you you have a lot of, to say that a person has a childlike innocence is really such a compliment. What about an adult like innocence? <laughs> well, they do say that you know in, uh, insanity is uh, hereditary. Uh -huh. You get it from your kids, you know. Yeah, I want to dedicate this song to. Sophie Lobel. And in doing so, I also dedicated to her wonderful parents who've had the pleasure of celebrating life and life events with, and that they should, you know, hold on to the fact for a very long time, especially in the, the formative years, that the children, they're really, our, they're, they're really our rabbis. They really teach us about you know, how precious and how beautiful and how amazing and how painful and how unfair, you know, but like everything is just, so, kids are such divas, so passionate, you know? It just yeah. goes right through them. Yeah. Won't you come and look for me? My way of seeing is, is clouded now. I don't want to have such memories as these. The beauty missing from the scenes that I've dreamed. And this is why I'm looking through the eyes of a child today. Remembering when we were younger, how everything was filled with wonder. Free to watch this big old world go rolling by. We could never have the way, hide the way we felt inside. And this is why I'm looking through the eyes of a child today. The eyes of a child, they never lie.
They look right through you No way to hide No way to hide They'll set you right Where you belong Right now Right now Now the eyes of age are hazy and crazed From staring at this broken world too long now Seem like gray is the only color they can see The rainbow slipped away Clouds have covered all the lights The lights of yesterday And this is why I'm looking Through the eyes of a child today Yes, this is why I'm looking Through the eyes of a child today This is why I'm looking Through the eyes of my child today Love you, Danny. Thanks. I love you too, Seth. Thank you. That was beautiful. I love that song too. That song is just so powerful and beautiful. Except that chord, you don't like that chord. Well, <laughs> she tried to get me to rewrite that chord. Well, no, it's perfect. Okay. All right, all right. <laughs> but that song is just ama- amazing. It's a, it's, yeah, a magical it's, song. The child might recognize. An unusual child might recognize, like, relate to some of the lyrics, but this, they're doing it. They're, they're doing all that stuff, you know. They're, yeah. they're watching the world go rolling by, you know. Yeah. And not, and not, you know, not worrying about, like, trying to figure out how does it work, you know, and what's gravity and drive so crazy. They just like, they like to have fun. They like to make believe. They like to dream things up, you yeah. know. You know, it's always interesting thing that I observed you know, God, Hashem makes the Bria, the creation, right? It's creation. And and then when 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 we're not working, you know, creation is work. Mm-hmm. When you're not we're not working, they they call it recreation. You go to the park and you have a recreational <laughs> facility. So what is it about not doing that recreates the creation, you know? Yeah. Maybe it's about the passivity like Shabbos and enjoying it. I'm not trying to make it or change it or alter it, but That's just accepting it. It's recreations. I love it's the way you look at language, like the way you dissect language. And... I have an interesting relationship. Thank you. I have an interesting relationship with language. Uh, we don't have time to go into that. I'll show it to you after after we shut the mics up. So we are going to wrap yeah, in a yeah. minute here, but I want to just first of all tell you, Seth. You know, you continue to be somebody who uh, I admire and. And somebody who I, I just find so so fascinating. You're such a beautiful person. You have so you're a complex person. There's so much to you. You know, you you've you've had your struggles, you've had some amazing triumphs, and um and and you've made some amazing art and uh and and you're a beautiful person. I mean, there's just so much to you in terms of philosophy and, and your love for Judaism and your love for music. <laughs> And your love for people. 
I do love people. Yeah. I love the creator. I love the creation. I love my brothers and sisters. I want to add that uh, I wish you a full and speedy recovery. Amen. And you played a song at my wedding. Oh. And we sang it together oh, in do, the style of Elvis. <laughs> remember? Yeah, you want to do it? It's one of yours that I remember from... Uh, I wrote it with, now, wrote it with Debbie Watkins there. She wrote the lyrics. Yeah. And I know that sometimes I, I, I mess up the lyrics. Don't worry but, about you it. Know. This is this is the <clears throat> this song is the um, the last call uh -huh. when 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 you know people are sort of like tipsy and mm -hmm. want, wanting to go home with the, you know the pretty girl and, yeah <laughs> yeah I like doing it like in the Elvis style too well I'll 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 prop you up from the bottom I'll let okay. you handle most of the vocals right am I a fool okay. <laughs> Am I supposed to start? This is the intro. I'll tap you in. Three and my fool. I want to say the words. I think I love you. Guess the time. The time's come to ask you if there's. Anyway, I, I could, could stay. stay. Let me know. Won't you let me know? I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I've waited all evening long. Just watching your face. If there was half a chance. You might want to dance in my, in my arms, baby. I, I would know. know. I don't want to go. No, it's, it's easy, easy. It's so easy to be your, your friend. friend. But now, but now I, I, don't I don't think that, that you can see to the heart of me that I want you to be so close. close. Am I a fool? Yeah. The one to say the words. I think I, I, think love, I love you. Oh, yeah, cause the time has come to so tell, me, tell me, tell me, if there's any way, any way, stay, won't you let me know, cause baby, I don't want to go. Seth, I don't want to go, this is a good way to end the interview, but we gotta go. I don't want to go. I love you, brother. Love you more. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for doing it. All right, everybody, that's our show. Thank you again to Seth Glass. Thank you for tuning in. Please leave five stars and a nice review. There's some not so nice ones that people put up during the pandemic, and I 
guess it was in response to my pandemic episodes and folks who weren't familiar with what the show is and haven't been with it for a while. But if you can, a minute of your time, please. Leave five stars and a nice review, and I'll really appreciate that. And please go check out fairenoughcomic.com and pick up my comic books. Happy Hanukkah, everybody. Uh, whether you observe it or not, I wish you a year of light and miracles. Until next time, I'll look forward to speaking to you again. Bye for now.